Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and most irregular the Martin show on True North on this Wednesday, January 17th, day three of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, where I am, well, not quite. I, I know I've told the story every day this week. Bear with me. I'll do it in like 15 seconds or less now. Uh, we've had to stay in the neighboring country of Austria, specifically the little ski town of Donburn because the World Economic Forum snatches up like every hotel and Airbnb within a, a rather sizable radius. So uh, here we are, but we're still going live and we are still getting in many hours of every day to Canadians. In fact, I say most things. Some of the questions we've been chatting about with people involve uh, what they've said and done in Davos. In other cases, we meet someone who is a bit of a subject matter expert. We want to ask them about that. I'm trying to kind of get a sense, and I, I can't recall every interview I did when I was in Davos last year, but I, people seem to be less eager to speak this time around. And in fact, as you'll learn on the show today, we've got a bunch of these clips that I've done where, you know, you look and you'll say, oh, wow, I, I spoke to so-and-so. And then you find that, oh, that interview was like, you know, four seconds because I asked a question and they didn't give an answer. So uh, that is effectively the problem that we're dealing with. Uh, a lot of people do not want to speak. A lot of people are not willing to speak. And I think yesterday was an interesting example of probably why that is. I, I spoke to J. Michael Evans, who was the guy a couple of years back promoting the individual carbon footprint tracker. And now he is left to just effectively pretending that he never said what he did last time he was here. So that is, I think, why it's important to ask these questions. And I'll say that silence is deafening. A lot of the times these world leaders and business leaders giving me non-answers and giving you non-answers, because I'm here asking questions on your behalf, is far more revealing and I would say probably far more honest than anything they would have said had they decided to open their mouths. So uh, we got a few of those today, but the big story is hot. Malay bringing what I would say rhetorical flame to this gathering of self-styled elites in the Swiss Alps. Now, Javier Malay has been to the World Economic Forum before. He is an economist. He's a bit of a renegade and a rebel. He's spoken at the WEF, and he has always been a libertarian. And I know there were some people that were a little bit skeptical of this. Was he just going to be some globalist shill? now that he has become the Argentine president. Now, uh, when Javier Malay was added to the speakers list at the World Economic Forum this year, I reported it and I had a number of people think, oh my goodness, this is not something that we should be celebrating. And then Javier Malay showed up. And I, I'll say a couple of things about this. One thing that was very important is that he did not change his tune at all from what he talks about when he is campaigning and what he talks about in the media. This was him making a rather significant and I would say cogent defense of capitalism. If free enterprise capitalism and economic freedom have proven to be extraordinary instruments to end poverty in the world, and we are now at the best time in the history of humanity, it is worth asking why I say that the West is endangered. And I say this precisely because in those of our countries that should defend the values of the free market, private property, and the other institutions of libertarianism, sectors of the political and economic establishment, some due to 
mistakes in the theoretical framework and others due to a greed for power are undermining the foundations of libertarianism, opening up the doors to socialism and potentially condemning us to poverty, misery and stagnation. It should never be forgotten that socialism is always and everywhere an impoverishing phenomenon that has failed in all countries where it's been tried out. It's been a failure economically, socially, culturally, and it also murdered over a hundred million human beings. That was, you may think, okay, fine. You know, he talks about capitalism, big whoop. Most of the people in that room are capitalists, at least the business magnates to whom he's speaking. But it was important nonetheless. I mean, the World Economic Forum is, yes, nominally a capitalist free market organization, but I say nominally because it doesn't really work out that way. It's the same group that fets Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, and quite literally a socialist. That's not just me saying, oh, he's a socialist. He is actually a socialist. He represents a socialist party. You also have Klaus Schwab talking about his grand vision of remaking capitalism, a capitalism that looks at government and industry and society as partners and co-owners of companies instead of shareholders, which is, you know, the actual definition of capitalism. And one thing that's interesting is that Javier Malay was, was kind of preempting the concerns that people give when he talks about socialism. And, and why this is so important is because he was really saying right from the outset, I'm not going to let you string me up on semantics when I reject socialism. He described perfectly what socialism is to him. ...produced by collectivism is no fantasy, nor is it an inescapable fate. But it's a reality that we are... Sorry, that, we're, we're going to build up to that clip. I, I think that's more of a dessert here. I, th this was on me. This is the one I'm talking about when he's talking about the West being under threat from socialism. Unfortunately, already started to go along this path. I know to many it may sound ridiculous to suggest that the West has turned to socialism, but it's only ridiculous if you only limit yourself to the traditional economic definition of socialism, which says that it's an economic system where the state owns the means of production. This definition in my view, should be updated in the light of current circumstances. Today, states don't need to directly control the means of production to control every aspect of the lives of individuals. What he's done there is quite important, and it's a lead-up to the point that he ended on, which I think is important here and really speaks to what has kind of emerged as the theme of the day, and it was kind of where I was going anyway, before Javier Malay took the stage. Now, I'll say two things on this before I get there. Number one, this is what world leaders should be doing when they come to Davos, if they come to Davos. And I'm sympathetic to the argument that speaking here and being here is not itself an example of someone being a sellout. It depends what you do here. And most leaders, when they come here, do sell out. They do decide to kiss Klaus Schwab's ring. They go along with what I'll say is just basically the globalist songbook. They all sing the same chorus, and they don't really leave much room for individuality. So what Javier Malay did here is incredibly important in that vein. Now, he was a little bit flattering with some of the business leaders in attendance. Now, I would say maybe too much, but I understand the point he's trying to make here, because these are people 
who are creating wealth by virtue of what they're doing. Now, largely the business leaders in Davos are creating wealth for themselves. But if you are a capitalist, you believe that uh, large corporations, large uh, businesses that bring in money are making opportunities for people. They're stimulating the economy. Now we can haggle over uh, inequality and equality. We can haggle over trickle down economics and all of that. But I, I think he was making a very clever point here in how he ended his remarks, even if it did sound a bit deferential on the surface. Take a look. The impoverishment produced by collectivism is no fantasy, nor is it an inescapable fate. But it's a reality that we Argentines know very well. Do not be intimidated, intimidated either by the political caste or by parasites who live off the state. Do not surrender to a political class that only wants to stay in power and retain its privileges. You are social benefactors. You're heroes. You're the creators of the most extraordinary period of prosperity we've ever seen. Let no one tell you that your ambition is immoral. If you make money, it's because you offer a better product at a better price, thereby contributing to general well-being. Do not surrender to the advance of the state. The state is not the solution. The state is the problem itself. You are the true protagonists of this story. And rest assured that as from today, Argentina is your staunch, unconditional ally. Thank you very much and long live freedom. Damn it. Long live freedom, damn it. Now, this is like a Javier Malay catchphrase, which I don't believe the interpreter did justice to. I, I think that you had to hear it in Javier Malay's original tone and cadence to appreciate it. But uh, nevertheless, that was what he said. That was how he ended. And it was probably not something that had ever been said before. I'm not talking about the damn it. I'm talking about the freedom part. That was not something that world leaders at Davos have ever heard other world leaders at Davos say. I suspect. Now, Javier Malay did what a lot of his supporters thought and hoped he would do when he got there. He took a flamethrower to the sacred cows and said, I'm going to stand up for liberty. I'm going to stand up for markets. And yeah, we are not going to say that making money is immoral. Good on him for doing that. Now, just as a bit of a, an aside here, Javier Malay uh, did the opposite of what many of those attending Davos did by taking their private jets to then get on the private helicopter and then get in the limo. Uh, he flew commercial which heads of government will oftentimes claim they're not able to do or aren't allowed to do for security reasons. But, you know, the UK prime minister, the Australian prime minister, they've all flown commercial. The Canadian prime minister does not. And that's true. Conservative, liberal, doesn't matter. Uh, Javier Malay flew Lufthansa from uh, Buenos Aires to Frankfurt. And then he got on a connecting flight in Frankfurt to get to Zurich, where, you know, it's a couple hours from Davos. But uh, it was interesting to see how much support he had on that play. And this was just a, a little snippet of one of the videos, uh, many, many videos and photos that were uploaded of his commercial flight. Viva la libertad, carajo! Libre mercado! Sin duda. Una foto, gracias. Dale. Ha <laughs> ha. 
Uh, imagine just like looking up uh, and seeing in you know three seats ahead of you a weird hairdo and a leather coat, and you're like, oh, that's kind of odd. That guy looks like a an aging '80s rocker or the president of Argentina, and you say, oh, it must be the '80s rocker, and then you realize, oh no, that is the uh, president of Argentina right there, flying commercial. Now, my my colleague is uh, flying back home, Lufthansa, so he's like wondering now. Uh, Cosman Georgia is wondering if he's going to be on the same plane as as Javier Malay. So if so, we'll we'll probably have that interview that uh, a lot of you have been asking for. Uh, but that was what he did. Now, uh, someone asked in the comments here, angry Canadian, uh, perhaps not her legal name. Why did Weff let him speak? That's weird. I have two answers for that. Number one because they think that he's going to go along with it. Maybe they think that like everyone else, he's going to go there and he's going to be absorbed in to the international community and start saying exactly what everyone wants him to say. The other alternative, which I'm, in, I'm leaning towards, is that they've become very nervous about a lot of the criticism that they've been facing. And they wanted to be able to say no. We, we don't all sound the same and talk the same. Look, we had Javier Malay here, the same reason they had Donald Trump here a few years back. And they love to be able to hold that up as an example of saying, no, 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 we, we let people in that we don't necessarily disagree with. So I, I think it's because they're so secure in what they are and who they are that they do not feel threatened by someone like him coming in. But I also would think there's a little bit of option A bleeding into it and in that they don't think he's going to behave the way he did. They don't think he's going to embarrass them as much as I think he did. And and really, as I was watching and listening to that, it, it reminded me of G uh, Ricky Gervais, the actor and comedian uh, hosting the Golden Globes a few years back. Like literally, I, I realize the implications of, of them are a bit different, but this is the clip that it reminded me of. Spoiler alert, um, season two is on the way. So in the end, he obviously didn't kill himself, just like Jeffrey Epstein. Shut up. I know he's your friend, but that I don't funny. care. You had to make your own way here and your own plane, didn't you? Right. Well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So if you do win an award tonight, would. don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So if you win, right? Come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your God. And so Javier Malay at uh, World Economic Forum, Ricky Gervais at the Oscars. Maybe we put a poll up in the comments on uh, who you think wore that uh, level of snark and disdain for the status quo better. But uh, that was the big takeaway for today. Now, uh, when I said that a theme had emerged, I think that what I mentioned earlier is important here is that world leaders oftentimes, whether they are liberal, conservative, green, socialist, right wing, left wing in their home countries, when they get onto the international stage, they all kind of converge and coalesce into this amorphous blob. I mean, Mark Rutte, who is the nominally conservative prime minister of the Netherlands, I, I would say a lot of people would dispute that when he's at Davos, sounds the same as a Justin Trudeau does. Boris Johnson, when he was the, again, supposedly conservative prime minister of the UK, when he's chairing the COP climate summit in Glasgow, he sounds exactly like, you know, maybe not exactly like Al Gore, but he sounds, sounds exactly like all of these other pro-net zero anti-oil and gas people. So you need someone that's going to at least be consistent. And one of the big models of inconsistency, and I, I've mentioned him on the show in the past, 
is a gentleman by the name of Hardeep Singh Puri. Now, he is the Minister of Natural Gas and Petroleum in India. Now, this is a guy whose cabinet position is not shying away from the fact that India is a country that relies on fossil fuels. It has the largest population in the world. I didn't realize it had surpassed China, but that was what Hardeep Singh Puri said today. Uh, not only do you have uh, that, but it's a country that needs energy, and the energy is coming from oil and gas. Now, Hardeep Singh Puri knows full well that you cannot just flip a switch and transition away from oil and gas to renewables, to solar and wind and all of that. And even if you could, it would be incredibly expensive, but you cannot sustain a population of a billion people by doing that. Yet all was him in 2022. You were on a panel about oil and gas and energy this morning. Do you think phasing out of fossil fuels is actually a realistic goal? Look, uh, I said what I had to, but you know, if you were to do that survey in uh, different parts of the world, if you were to do it, for instance, in South, Ash South Asia or Africa or in uh, Latin America, you'd get results that might be a little different from the kind of results you're getting here. So that was when I ran into him on the streets of Davos after he had said this. Mr. Moderator, if, any, if the global crises that we are facing has taught us anything, we need to accelerate on the transition. And we're doing it in a large number of ways. But let me also share with you the perspective <clears throat> that we are a country where 60 million people go to the petrol bunk every morning to fill up, 60 million. One of the things that we need to ensure is to make sure that there is no energy shortage in any form in a large country which has a population of 1.34 billion. See what's happening to countries around India. I don't want to be, I'm not, uh, I'm merely stating a fact. Four or five countries around India are in severe, dire straits. It's happening in countries all over the world. So we need to be able to navigate our way out of this current energy crisis and into an accelerated transition to green energy. So on stage, when he's talking to his Davos chums, he's saying we need to accelerate the transition. We need to get away from fossil fuels faster. And then you run into him on the streets and he's saying, oh, well, yes, in the developing world, no one buys into any of that. Well, I thought when I saw him today that a follow-up on that was in order. Take a look. Minister Andrew Lawton, True North, I'm wondering how countries like yours are supposed to power themselves after this so-called energy transition. Doesn't want to answer a question. He's advocating for the energy transition on stage, but won't explain the very fundamental question of how India is supposed to power itself if that transition happens. I, you can tell my frustration with these people is growing and my tolerance is waning when like after the questions, I just start to do like a little bit of a monologue when they uh, walk away from me. But uh, this is, a, I think, an example of what the problem is here. And it's why it's so important when someone is going to go and tell them no. So uh, that's kind of where I am on this whole thing right now, is that if you want someone to push back against this, I do think there is some significance to the idea that maybe you have to have a little bit of disruption from within the institution. I think boycotting it is ultimately going to be more important because when you boycott it, it loses its influence. None of the uh, none of the big money guys are going to spend money just to hang around with each other. They need access to politicians for this to be worthwhile. 
Now, earlier in the day, that was actually a bit of a theme that I was trying to get out of some of the conversations I had with people. I wanted to really get them to acknowledge what it is that they see in all of this. And uh, just to give you some of the raw numbers here, uh, well, Microsoft, Accenture, Salesforce, all of these strategic partners of the World Economic Forum, they pay hundreds of thousands of US dollars a year to be members of the World Economic Forum. They get then the opportunity to spend tens of thousands of dollars a year to buy tickets for the World Economic Forum annual meeting. It's invitation only, but the invitation is an invitation to like pony up, I don't know, like $20,000 to buy a ticket here. That we, we get here for free, but we don't get to go inside and, and enjoy their you know fancy bug sandwiches and whatnot. So uh, that's effectively the, the, the racket here. And why are these businesses ponying up the cash? My theory on this is that they're getting access to politicians behind the prying eyes of the media. Well, the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, happened to be walking by, and I thought maybe, just maybe, he would be able to shed some light on why Microsoft sees this as such a worthwhile investment. What is it uh, Microsoft gets out of its association with the World Economic Forum? It must be something. You're spending enough money on it. What do you get out of it? Well, that's a, that's a softball, too, that one. I'm getting body checked by your security for an easy one. <laughs> it was the it was the shorter woman that uh, body. I don't know if it was on camera when it happened. But Sean says iffy. Yeah, she kind of body checked me out of the way. But then when I commented on the body check, the other security guy and Brad both chuckled. So uh, that was that. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a big boy. I could hey, I didn't get like the full David Menzies takedown, which maybe I'll get if I if I run into Christian Freeland later. Uh, but he didn't want to answer what it is that he gets out of being at the World Economic Forum. Neither did the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, to whom I asked the same question. Prime Minister, what's the value in world leaders being here? I have to go. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all the that's the only clip. That's it. All that's all we have is I, I have to go. Uh, it's funny that like the the time it takes them to say uh, whatever they say to ignore you is like no different than the time it's going to take them to answer the question. Now, uh, I did get a little bit of an answer from the Prime Minister of Belgium, Alexander de Croo, although as you'll see in a moment on the follow-up question, man, that limo door shuts quickly. Minister, I, I'm from Canada. I'm just wondering what the value is of, of world leaders like you being here. Oh, people need to talk to each other and people need to listen. This event is much more about listening than about talking. But aren't you being sold access by having business leaders paying to be in your presence, sir? I guess not. <laughs> yeah, there's the, uh, again, the, the little sass at the end. My apologies. I, I, I lower the veil of professionalism ever so slightly. But uh, there you go. You have really not an eagerness for any of these people to explain what it is that's so important that they get here that they could not get in any other way. Now, Christia Freeland, I, I mentioned a moment ago, obliquely, I should probably uh, make this a little bit more clear. She is in Davos right now. Now, I suspected she would turn up, but there was never any public announcement of it. And the World Economic Forum had not uh, released its list of attendees. And I will say up until this morning, again, the third of five, third of five days for this conference, Christia Freeland did not appear on the speaking agenda. So she was added in at uh, the, the last minute to uh, this morning for a speech she's giving or a panel she's doing tomorrow. Now, I, maybe she just had to clear her schedule to find a way to make it work. Maybe they were trying to you know, hide the fact that she was coming. I don't know what it was. I don't really care. 
But the point is, Christia Freeland, who is the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, while also serving as a member of the Board of Governors or Board of Trustees for the WEF, is in the city. She had, according to her itinerary, a bunch of private meetings today, and tomorrow she's going to be speaking on a panel. So uh, this is, I think, fascinating to me that we have politicians, and she's an example, not of a Javier Malay that's going to come here and represent Canadian interest, but she's an example of the one that wants to come and kiss Klaus Schwab's ring and talk about how Canada and the World Economic Forum have so much in common. And that, I think, is why it's so important, as I've said time and time again this week, for journalists to be here and ask these questions. Because even if they don't get answered, there's still a value in putting questions to these people and exposing their unwillingness to answer, their unwillingness to tackle what are very real concerns for people around the world. I, I think the big get of the day was definitely the World Health Organization uh, Director General, Dr. Tedros, well, doctor, I mean, he's a PhD, I don't want to dismiss it, but he's not a medical doctor, uh, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Now, uh, this is a, a man who has had extraordinary power over the last few years because of the role the World Health Organization took in leading Canada and the world through the pandemic, supposedly. This is the guy who's now pushing countries to adopt a pandemic treaty in March, and he was actually touting that in one of his panels on stage today, but he cannot answer or will not answer fundamentally simple questions about the public health interventions that have proven catastrophic for the world. Take a look. Dr. Adnam, do you believe that lockdown should always be rejected as a public health measure? Can we talk later? What time? I'm happy to arrange a meeting with you, sir. Do you believe lockdown should be rejected as a public health measure? Sir, it's a simple question. Do you condemn public health interventions like lockdowns and vaccine mandates? The slogan for the WEF agenda this year is rebuilding trust. Do you believe China should be held accountable for its role in COVID? Yeah, we can't switch. Sir, are lockdowns bad? Are lockdowns a bad thing? I mean, you, may, you can't say I didn't try. Uh, that was a, an example. You saw Avi Yamini from Rebel News, Callum Smiles, who is an independent journalist from the United Kingdom. We're all trying to get it there. And again, the simple question, will you condemn lockdowns? No answer. Will you condemn vaccine mandates? No answer. Now, uh, maybe he didn't hear me. I was pretty close to him, though. Silence, again, is deafening, I will say. And here's a man that, I reiterate, wants to get countries on board with this pandemic treaty by May. Now, this is where we go back from the streets into the Davos Congress Center for a moment, because I want you to hear what he articulates as being one of the chief impediments to his ideal vision for how the world should respond to health crises. The key in order to have better prepared and to address the disease X is the pandemic agreement. Mm -hmm. The pandemic agreement can bring all the experience, all the challenges that we have faced and all the solutions into one. And that agreement can help us to prepare for the future in, in a better way, because this is about a common enemy. And without a shared response, starting from the preparedness, it, you know, we will face the same problem as, as, as COVID. And deadline for the Pandemic agreement is May 2024, and member states are negotiating. This is between countries, um, and I hope they will deliver uh, this pandemic agreement by that time, by on the deadline, because 
If this generation cannot do it, we're the lived community. We have the first-hand experience. I don't think incoming generation, the next generation will do it. So for our children and grandchildren's sake, I think we have to convert all the lessons we have learned into this pandemic and prepare the world for, for, for the future because this is a common global interest and national interest, very narrow national interest should not come into, into the way. Of course, national interest is natural, but it's the narrow national interest that could be difficult and affecting the negotiations even as, 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 as we speak. Ooh, Tedros is a lot more chatty when he's among friends, isn't he? I would have taken even just, you know, seven or eight of those words that he had for his Davos chums when I was chatting with him on the streets. Again, I was asking yes or no questions. You can't argue that it's because you have to get to a meeting when I'm walking alongside you. I like how, by the way, he was like, let's do this later. Okay, name a time, sir. Name a time and a place and I will be there. I, that happened to me last year, actually, where I, I was I wanted to ask the president of Serbia a question. And he said, can we do this tomorrow? As though, like, I can just be guaranteed to run into the president of Serbia tomorrow. So one day I told him it was a sports question. He was uh, he was all fine with it. Uh, one uh, Elisa Angel uh, just has a lovely comment here, which I may use tomorrow. She says, ask them if their silence is acquiescence to the premise of the question. If they don't respond, we'll simply assume it is. I'm, I'll actually do you one better than that, Elisa. I think what I might do tomorrow is say, if you don't answer, I'm going to report it as a yes or something like that. Or if you don't answer, I'll report it as a no, depending on the the, the, the idea. We'll, we'll play around with ideas. But uh, yeah, I should tell them that by being silent, they are saying X. They're saying something, whatever the context of the discussion is. And in his case, his refusal to condemn lockdown. Because again, if I were to say to him, Take the exact same circumstances. The guy walking down the street doesn't want to be questioned, but he's getting questioned. If I were to say, do you think the world should know that vaccines are good? He's going to break stride and say absolutely, because he wants to say it. He wants to brag about that. He wants to promote that. If I said, hey, do you think the pandemic treaty is good? He's going to say yes. But it's only when you ask questions that they, for whatever reason, do not wish to answer that they clam up and get silent, as was the case with John Kerry yesterday talking about China and private jet travel. Although the private jet one oddly seemed to like get him riled. I should have led with private jet because he actually seemed to want to answer that one because he believes the technicality of I don't personally own a private jet is exonerating enough for him. But uh, nevertheless, that is uh, what happened today on the streets of Davos. Now, uh, it wasn't all heavy. It wasn't all heavy. I, I will point out that there's a bit of an oddity in Davos in that it's just like a big major conference in a lot of ways. You just see people walking around. Today it was a weird one because we, we saw the Queen of the Belgians. I believe, is it Marguerite? Margrette? I forget her name. I, I apologize to, to the Belgians. I, Belgians probably don't tune in. But uh, we saw the Queen of the Belgians and I was like, oh, wow, that's you know, the Queen of the Belgians. I didn't have any questions for her. I'd already spoken to the Prime Minister. And then like uh, five minutes later, I wish that I had thought of a question because the King of the Belgians came. So I guess they were traveling in separate motorcades. Uh, so we had uh, two monarchs, uh, two princesses also. We got uh, Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie of York who were passing by today. I, I have no grievances with either of, the, uh, either of their royal highnesses. I'm uh, not particularly fond of their father, Prince Andrew, but I don't believe that daughters should pay for the sins of the father. Uh, so I thought I'd have like a softball for Her Royal Highness uh, Princess Beatrice when she walked by, but uh, th she seemed to have to work way too hard to, uh, to come up with an answer to this one. Highness, any message to Canadians? Uh, oh, gosh. 
so many wonderful things. Good. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, at least she was lovely. She had a, she had a lovely accent. And by the way, if you saw uh, Sean Thompson, my producer on the show uh, a couple of weeks back, uh, you'll know that his hair uh, is like identical in color to Princess Beatrice's hair. Uh, but his is a lot smoother, but she has the nicer accent. So uh, it's a tough one. If Her Royal Highness needs a new gig, we uh, we might be able to just like do a ginger swap every couple of days. It's like a, a work study program or something. But uh, the royals, you know, they're real people just like us. All right. Well, in any case, uh, that does it for today here. I will uh, bid you adieu, but we will be back tomorrow and hopefully have uh, some more hard-hitting questions, maybe some non-answers, maybe some answers from those assembled in Davos for the World Economic Forum annual meeting. But again, a big thank you to all of your support and encouragement as we brave the cold and try to at least have some truth to power here. It is important work, and I'm honored to be doing it. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.